If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. I am delighted to welcome Mary Louise Nichols to the podcast today to explore the issues of diversity in our field, highlight current efforts to increase diversity in our field, and outline steps that clinicians can take to improve their cultural competence. Mary Louise is also discussing the value of mentorship, particularly for pre-professionals and early career professionals, and its role in increasing diversity in our field. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and this is the Speech Uncensored Podcast. Well, hello, Mary Louise Nichols. How are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so delighted to have you on the podcast today. I'm really, really excited about our topic. And the title that you came up with thrills me to no end. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I love it. So we're going to be talking about um, SLP diversity through mentorship and changing the face of the field. So I'm really excited to hear about your experiences um, through all the different levels of this. Um, Because as I understand it, you were mentored and now you're menteeing. Yes. And now you want to bring others into the fold and encourage them to become mentors and mentees. Yes. Awesome. That's so cool. Okay. Well, tell us um, a little bit more about you, uh, where you practice, what you're doing, and then we'll dive into our topic. All right. So um, like Leanne said, um, my name is Mary Louise Nichols, and I'm a medical speech and language pathologist. I work in a large acute ac- acute care hospital um, in a large metropolitan city. Um, I've been doing acute care. Uh, I've been a medical SLP pretty much since I started uh, my career, which hasn't been that long ago, about four and a half years um, ago. Um, I've worked in acute care as well as inpatient rehab. So I really love the medical setting. I'm very passionate about the medical setting. Um, And I found that when I graduated from graduate school, I was very confident in my hard skills and my clinical skills. Um, But when I started working, I found found that I had a little bit of difficulty navigating in the areas of those soft skills um, in the workplace. And I think a lot of that had to do with me being um, the only person of color in my place of employment and um, a lot of my clients um, not being people of color. And um, there was there was a little disconnect for me and I didn't quite understand how to navigate this field and navigate the workplace. Um, and so um, that led me to uh, become very interested in not only um, not only being mentored, but also mentoring other people um, so that they can navigate some of those hurdles um, that I had to navigate when I first started working. Um, so uh, I also it also led me to start uh, my blog, me the SLP.com, um, where I work to 
you know, highlight and engage young minorities in our field. So it's kind of like an outlet um, for young minorities in our field. And I'm also an early career professional, which I which I talked about. I've only been working for four and a half years. So that would put me in the category um, category of early career professional. And I'll talk a little bit about what an early career professional is and why that group is so important in our field. Yes. Oh, good. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this is perfect. You're setting this up so well. I'm really excited about all these things. Everything you're talking about are so important to me as well. And I love that you are creating something helpful based on your obstacles. It's it's not enough for you to just learn how to navigate it on your own. You want to share that and enrich other people. Absolutely. That is so incredible. Thank like you. I adore that. Thank so. you. <laughs> All right. So let's start off with um, why is diversity important? Like, let's start there. Okay. Um, so I think diversity um, is a twofold issue. So I think we've got diversity in regards to the clients that we serve and the patients that we serve. Um, and that that includes, um, you know, making sure that you're interacting with your patients appropriately and that you're choosing appropriate clinical materials and your evaluations are appropriate, your treatment activities are appropriate. But then I also think there's diversity in regards to our clinicians and making sure that we have a diverse workforce um, and that, um, you know, people feel um, included and seen and counted um, in this profession. And so I think that that's important as well. I think they're equally as important. Um, I tend to focus more on um, diversity in our workforce and our clinicians, because I think that feeds into um, diversity when we're talking about patients. When we have a diverse workforce and diverse um a diverse pool of clinicians, I think we're, we're often better equipped to um, interact uh, more appropriately with our patients. People who have different um, outlooks and diverse perspectives, I think they're able to um, transfer those thoughts and ideas when they're, to, you know, to their clients, when they're working with their patients. Um, and another thing that I want to um, that I want to say is that I think diversity is diversity is important, but it's not just the numbers. I don't want to focus too much on the numbers, but it's also diversity of thought, diversity of perspective. So I don't think that just by increasing the number of male SLPs or increasing the number of black SLPs is going to help our profession alone. Um, I think it's really about diversifying our, our thoughts and our perspectives so that we can be better clinicians and better serve our patients. Yes, I agree. It, it does go beyond surface characteristics because there's a, a whole breadth of various experiences in life that people can be exposed to. And it's, it's those kinds of experiences and perspectives that will enrich all of us when we share them and learn from them together. So I like that. That's a very good point. Thank you. So why is mentorship important? Um, so again, kind of talking about my journey, um, and why mentorship is so important to me. I think, um, I think it's so important that we, again, highlight those underrepresented groups in our field and, and make them feel um, seen. And, and like I said, when I was in graduate school, I had amazing professors who served as mentors to me. Um, and then they pushed me to find other mentors. They understood the lack of diversity in our program. Um, and they, they really pushed me to find mentors outside of my university. And I appreciated that. Um, and they let me know about different programs that 
that I should apply for and that I should become a part of. And that really helped me. Um, you know, sometimes you can feel insulated in your little bubble, which is graduate school. Um, and you forget that there's a whole nother world out there. And there are SLPs just like you who may be facing some of the same issues. There are SLPs who have gone what you've gone through, what you've been through, um, and they they want to reach back and they want to help you. And so those programs really, um, really showed me that there are other SLPs out there who are part of these minority groups in our field. Um, and they, they know so much and um, they really helped me during my time um, in graduate school. Um, I think right now I love mentorship because I think it's an opportunity for me to um, again, guide younger clinicians um, and and help them get on um, get on the, the path to becoming a speech pathologist and, and navigating this field, especially in the medical field. I feel like we don't see enough um, speech pathologists who are in the medical field. Um, and so many people want to get into the medical field. I felt like, um, you know, mentorship is the prime opportunity to explain to these younger clinicians, you know, that the medical field exists, this is what it's comprised of, and this is how you can get into the medical field if you're if you're interested. Um, and I think through mentorship, we can really um, reach back for some of those underrepresented groups in our field um, and and guide them into um, into our field and, and make them feel um you know, again, seen and counted and, and heard. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So you mentioned a little bit while in grad school, how you kind of got involved in some mentorship there, you know, your professors encouraged you to reach outside of that bubble and, and, you know, I'm assuming like contact professionals, like in the medical setting too. Is that kind of what they encouraged you to do? Yes, absolutely. Good. Good for them. Cause that, that does, that takes a lot of like shoring up of strength because it it can put you in a vulnerable place. And yeah, so it can. Yeah. that's a good like thing to try out before you graduate is, is connecting and networking with professionals. So I'm glad they encouraged that. They did. They did. They were fabulous. So outside of that, um, what other ways did you get involved in mentoring? Um, Clearly, it didn't stop there. <laughs> it did not. It did not. Um, so I love that you mentioned, uh, you know, contacting other professionals um, in the medical setting. Well, first, I'll go back to undergrad. So kind of give you a little back background about my undergrad and how I even found the field of speech pathology. Um, that's kind of where my mentorship started. I say grad school, but really it started before then. So I was a psychology major. So I was not a um, CSD major in undergrad. I was a psych major. And I knew that I wanted to go into speech pathology, but I didn't know a lot about it. And for those of you who re who've read my blog, um, I kind of delve in a little bit more um, to, my, to my story. But um, I, I didn't know a lot about speech pathology and I had wonderful professors in my undergrad who encouraged me to seek mentorship as well. And I ended up cross-registering at another local university um, and taking call and taking classes in um, like CSD classes. And while I was there, I met a black speech and language pathologist um, who was, she was actually the professor of one of my classes. And it just so happened that she had graduated from the same college where I was currently enrolled. And that meant so much to me to see another speech and language pathologist who looked like me and who, who had graduated from the same college that I had graduated from. I feel like that was the first time that I felt 
I could do this. And she really mentored me even down to what graduate schools are you applying to? I really want you to think about these things and I want you to take these things into consideration. And we'd meet after class and talk and she would just just guide me. And so I went from feeling completely alone because I didn't know anyone at my college who was interested in speech and language pathology. I went from feeling completely alone to then feeling like I had someone in my corner and someone who um, could could guide me on this on this path. Um, And so I appreciated her so much. And I appreciated my professors in undergrad who pushed me to cross register, who were there with me filling out the paperwork and signing all the forms. And it was a process, but they helped me and they mentored me through that process. And I think that was the first step in in getting to where I am today. So it didn't all start in grad school. It started in undergrad. and, And I appreciate that. And then when I got to graduate school, um, like I said, some of the things that I did um, were one, just starting with cold calls. Like you said, you know, you may find a speech pathologist on the internet, or I would just search hospitals and see what they were researching, see what they were interested in. And then I would just send them an email and say, Hey, like, do you think you could chat with me for a few minutes? I'm really interested in your research. And I see that your interest is this. Do you think you could just chat with me for a little bit? Um, Or maybe they'll email you back. Um, I had one who offered for me to come and shadow. um, And it was an awesome experience for me. Um, So I think don't underestimate the value of cold calls um, and just finding people. But um, some other programs, um, you know, ASHA has wonderful, wonderful programs. And I want to go a little bit into the programs that they offer that um, really work to foster mentorship um, among our members um, and also work to improve diversity um, in our field. And I think they kind of go hand in hand. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but um, some of the programs are the ASHA uh, Students to Empower Professional Program, which we call the STEP program. Um, I joined that program and I was paired with um, a mentor uh, who I still keep in contact with to this day. She's fabulous. Um, and so a lot of the a lot of the mentors and mentees in the STEP program are from minority groups and underrepresented groups in our field, but not always. Um, so anybody can join the STEP program, I believe. So it's definitely a resource that I would look into for anyone. Um, but they do like to pair um they do like to pair mentors and mentees who are from these underrepresented groups in our field. Um, Because again, it gives them um, an opportunity to speak with someone and get to know someone who is doing similar things uh, in the field that they're interested in. Um, So the STEP program is great. Uh, The Minority Student Leadership Program is great. I was a participant in the Minority Student Leadership Program, also called MSLP. You'll see it abbreviated like that. Another great program. It's a week-long program at ASHA. Um, It's essentially a leadership retreat um, for graduate students. So if you're not even graduate students, I believe undergraduate as well. So undergraduate, graduate students, and PhD students are eligible for this. And this is for any minorities or underrepresented groups in our field. Um, So it's not just for ethnic and racial minorities. It's for males. Okay. Um, Males, um, you know, different ethnic and racial um, uh, minority groups in our field. Um, And you'd be surprised at when you look at the cohort. I think a lot of times when we think of um, 
minority, we tend to zoom in on people of color. And when you look at the MSLP um, program cohort, um, you see so much diversity and you see all of the different groups that we really need to be reaching out to in our field. And it's not just people of color. And so um, that's one thing that I love about the Minority Student Leadership Program. I also love that it ranges from undergraduates to PhD students. So you're getting to um, you're getting to network and, and get in contact with so many people, um, people that I met in MSLP. SLP program I still keep in touch with today. Um, and they've just been so helpful to me. Um, the, the people at ASHA who run the Minority Student Leadership Program, they become mentors to you um, and you become a you become a part of the MSLP community and you use that community as mentorship. So these ASHA programs are great. Um, I will say that they're competitive, um, but they're great. And once you are part of that program and part of that community, um, I mean, the mentorship opportunities are innumerable um, and you just get to make connections with people all over the world, all over the country that, um, that, you know, you might not normally come in contact with. So those are great programs, your ASHA programs. Um, I also, you know, went to conventions, okay? Conventions are going to be your best friend, state conventions, ASHA conventions. Um, there is the National Association, um, the National Black Association of Speech, Language, and Hearing in Basla. They have a, an annual convention. Um, great opportunities to network. And I talk to a lot of young professionals and they often feel so overwhelmed by conventions um, mm -hmm. because they're huge and they're expensive and you've got these big time researchers there and it can be overwhelming, but I just encourage everyone to attend these conventions. Even if you're walking around by yourself, you know, that's okay. Um, because you will meet so many people there. I can't tell you how many people I've met just walking back to my hotel room at ASHA or at breakfast at Mbosla and you just sit at the table with them and, um, you make connections that last years, if not lifetimes. So um, really getting out of your comfort zone and seeking people, uh, making connections with people and those connections then blossom into mentoring relationships. Nice. I love it. Mary Louise, you just make it sound so easy, but like <laughs> for me to approach somebody like, I just turn and run. Like it's the hardest thing. Thank God there's the internet and email or I might like never be able to do this podcast. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I am not big on, it's very, you know, I get very nervous when it comes time to network. I, I think back to MSLP, the Minority Student Leadership Program. It was fabulous. It was a week long like I said, a week long leadership retreat. And there was so much networking. I mean, every day it was networking and you would go back to your hotel room at the end of the day and you would just be exhausted from networking. Um, and, and it was, it was uncomfortable. I mean, I have to admit it was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I was in graduate school and I'm used to being cooped up in my apartment studying. And now to, you know, to bring me to, I was, we were in Chicago that year for the Ash convention to bring me to Chicago with all of these people and expect me to just jump in and start networking, it was uncomfortable. Um, and, and some of it will be uncomfortable. But when you look back and you see the risks that you have taken um, and, and the reward from those risks, I think 
I think it's worth it. Um, but I totally agree with you. I am not into, you know, networking and just walking up to people. Um, but there are also, you know, there are also those programs like the ASHA Step program um, where they pair you with someone. And Basla has a mentoring program where they pair you with someone. So that kind of takes some of the guesswork out of it. And it takes some of the fear of just approaching a stranger. So um, if, if people are out there are like you, Leanne, and they're just not, you know, Know, they're nervous to walk up to someone and just start a conversation, try some of those programs where you get paired with someone. So um, that might help alleviate some of the fears. That's a really good recommendation. I'm glad like you took that route because, you know, you, you also had a really good point. Like um, anything that scares you or anything that's risky is sometimes in our field going to have a really positive outcome. If it, if it requires you to get outside of yourself and to put yourself out there a bit, like the payoff could be massive. And even knowing that though, still sometimes does not encourage me to talk to a stranger. (laughs) I agree. I agree. It is. It's like, I have to like psych myself up for it. So And that is why a lot of these mentorship programs match you. And they're not like, okay, go find somebody. Because clearly, if that's all it took, and we could all do that, we wouldn't need these programs. Yes, yes. (laughs) Cool, cool. All right. My next question is, how often do you engage in mentorship? That's a great question. I... I engage in mentorship at least weekly, um, but I'd probably say daily. I mean, it's it really is an ongoing thing. When you really get into mentorship and you're really passionate about mentorship, like I am, um, it is really uh, it's really a daily thing. Um, I you know, I do some mentoring in person where I am, you know, mentoring my graduate clinicians who come for their externship programs at my hospital. Um, I love taking graduate students and mentoring them in the, in, you know, the few weeks that they're there. Um, sometimes, like I said, going back to conferences, in-person mentoring at conferences is great, making connections at conferences. Um, but I also do a lot of virtual mentoring, um, And that's where I'm usually doing it weekly, if not daily. So um, programs where they pair you, like in Basla's mentoring program, um, ASHA, Student to Empower Professional, the STEP program, um, that's a lot of virtual uh, mentorship where they're going to pair you with someone and then you can keep in contact with them via email or phone or FaceTime. Um, You pick you pick how you want to contact them. But typically it's typically it's virtually. then, of course, like I said, I have my blog, Me the SLP, where I encourage um, young clinicians and even not young clinicians to reach out to me and ask me any questions they have about being a med SLP, um, any questions about diversity in our field or being part of a, a minority group in our field. Um, I love I love mentoring through my blog my blog platform. It's amazing. I have people who reach out to me on Instagram, people who email me, um, people who reach out to me on Facebook. And so I'm all, I'm constantly in contact with, with people. So I love virtual mentorship as well. We can't underestimate the value, um, of virtual, virtual mentorship. And then also, um, I forgot to mention earlier about, um, looking into local meetups and local groups in your area. Um, so a lot of like, especially large metropolitan cities will have, um, meetups for, um, different, 
you know, different groups of SLPs. So maybe like a black SLP uh, group meetup, or maybe an LGBTQ SLP meetup, or um, a male SLP meetup, or a Hispanic SLP meetup. Um, There are so many groups that people have formed and um, just kind of keep your ear to the ground and you'll hear about a lot of them. You can look them up on social media or um, like a meetup app um, and they may, may have that listed. Um, and so just join those groups. I've joined a lot here um, in my in my area and that serves as mentorship too. We are in a group me and we constantly keep in contact and when we have questions, clinical questions, um, you know, if someone's looking for a new position, a new job, it circulates through our group me and it's such a great way to, to network, such a great way to network and uh, provide mentorship um, for people in your area. So look for local meetups as well. Yeah, I kind of took something that you just said, that your local meetups are a great opportunity for mentorship. And sometimes being a mentor doesn't mean it's somebody with loads more experience than you or loads less experience than you. Sometimes being a mentor to your colleague who is about the same place with you is incredible because you'll be exposed to different things. You might learn of something new and you can share it with your friend. And that's, that's mentorship. Like don't discount what we can offer each other. Exactly. Um, I have so many friends who I reach out to when I have a question, like I have friends who are, you know, phenomenal when we start talking about trach, vent, inline PMV, they're phenomenal at that. I have friends who are phenomenal with early intervention. Um, I have phenomenal uh, friends who are phenomenal in the schools, friends who are phenomenal um, with um, AAC, you know, and so you can seek mentorship from people who aren't necessarily um, older than you or have more uh, clinical experience in you. It's just different. Um, and so, yes, I reach out to them all the time when I have questions and they provide mentorship. Sometimes it's not even them telling me clinical things. It's just that emotional support can help get you through a bad day or, um, you know, get you through a tough week. So just having them there for an emotional support is also a form of mentorship in a way as well. Yes. Yes. Um, I was speaking with another SLP and they talked about how they have different types of mentors. So some like for clinical knowledge, some, as you mentioned, more for like that kind of emotional support, some for professional advancement, you know, everyone's got something to offer and you don't have to be that one mentor who is trying to mentor somebody in all of those realms. Like, that might be too much, but you could offer your experience doing X, Y, Z. You know, maybe someone could come to you because they just want to start a blog and and you have one. And so they're like, can you tell me how you did that? You know, it could be something like that, even though you have so many more skills to offer, that's kind of just the mentorship that they need. And so, yeah, absolutely. That was a weird example, but it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, let me see. I want to know, um, who do you partner with to connect with students wanting or needing a mentor? So I feel like we've kind of 
covered this though. Yeah, we have. So um, I kind of went over all the different uh, places to look if you are looking for a uh, mentor or if you're seeking mentorship. We talked about um, local SLPs, local uh, local meetups. We talked about we talked about just doing some cold calls, uh, finding local SLPs in your area. Um, we talked about national organizations like ASHA and their programming, their Office of Multicultural affairs is phenomenal. Um, the, uh, the, those who work in the office of multi multicultural affairs are also phenomenal. Um, and they have so much programming that I would encourage you all to, to look into it more than just step more than just minority student leadership program. Um, they also have uh, multicultural constituency groups, um, that meet at ASHA. And I believe they meet, um, as other times during the year. So um, in Basla, the National Black Association for Speech, Language, and Hearing, that is one of their constituency groups. Um, They also have a Hispanic caucus. They have an Asian Indian caucus. Um, So many different constituency groups that I would encourage everyone to look into if you feel like um, you would like to be a part of one of those constituency groups. And there's so much mentorship to be had in those constituency groups. Um, So if Again, that's another program that ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs offers. And they've been doing this for a long time. I believe at this past ASHA convention, they were celebrating their 50th year of doing this. So um, I hear people say, well, what do, what is ASHA doing to improve diversity? What are the programs? And you know, when we ask these questions, there's radio silence. No one knows what ASHA is doing. Um, but they're doing so much. And so I would encourage everyone um, to look into what ASHA is doing to um, to foster uh, mentoring relationships, to improve diversity um, in our field. It's so much. And if you go to ASHA's uh, Office of Multicultural Affairs website, you'll see so many great resources, so much information about the, the programming um, that they offer. Um, another thing that ASHA offers is the, the uh, special interest groups. SIG-14 in, in particular, the Cultural and Linguistic cultural and linguistic diversity SIG. Um, I'm a member of that SIG 14. It's wonderful. Um, you become a part, again, you become a part of a community. Uh, you can interact with other speech therapists and ask them questions, uh, email them, send them messages. If you find someone who's interested in something that you're interested in and you want to be there, you want them to mentor you, you can reach out through that community, um, the SIG 14 community. So I encourage everyone to look at um, SIGs as well. Even if you're not, you're not interested in, um, the cultural and linguistic diversity SIG. If you're really interested in swallowing, join that SIG. If you're interested in early intervention, join that SIG. Um, and try and find someone who is interested in the same things that you're interested in. SIGs are a great, uh, a great resource. So, so many resources. Um, and I would just point anyone to any of those resources um, if they're looking for uh, mentorship. So... Perfect. I love that list. I've like written it all down. I'm going to put these in the show notes. These are so good. Um, 
I love that that we that our national like organization does have so many good tools in place. And I think you're right. We're not necessarily aware of them. And I think a big part of that is because we're not utilizing them. And so, you know, you're not the first person to tell me how valuable they have found their SIG membership. I've refrained from getting one. And I think it's, I don't know, because I'm cheap, I guess. Like, But it's time for me to get off the fence because I've heard nothing but positive um, input from people who participate in them. And so if we don't feel like we're getting a value out of ASHA or our membership, then it's probably because we're not utilizing what they have and what they're doing. And so I don't know why I felt like I needed to say that, I guess, because I hear a lot of kickback on negativity about ASHA and like, I get it. I've been there, but the more I do this podcast and talk with people and hear about the programs that they've used and that are out there, like the more I'm like, Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. And I and I think I think you bring up a really good point when you were saying that um we're not we don't know about a lot of these resources because they're underutilized. Um and I think I think especially ones that are geared towards minority groups, those are absolutely underutilized in our field because that kind of segues into our topic of diversity and and how mentorship and diversity kind of go hand in hand um, and how we can use mentorship to improve the diversity in our field. Um, So when we look at our ASHA demographic snapshot, um, we see that the majority of our field, um, when we talk about um, ethnic and racial makeup, we're about 92% white um, and 8%, uh, that 8% is basically all other minority groups. Um, and, and those are stats from um, the uh, demographic st- snapshot from the end of 2019. So these are relatively um, new stats. These aren't these aren't old stats. Um, and, and this has been an issue that our field has been facing for quite a while. And I think every year um, the topic comes up and we talk about how we can fix it. Um, But the truth is we've remained relatively stagnant around those numbers. Uh, Same when we look at, um, when we look at the, uh, the gender makeup. Um, So our field is about um, 96% female and about 4% male. Um, Again, those numbers have remained relatively stagnant. We haven't seen a large shift. Um, And so I think when we start talking about uh, resources for minority groups in our field, I think a lot of them go unrecognized because they don't apply to the majority of people in our field. So um, I wouldn't expect the average speech therapist to be able to tell me about the minority student leadership program, Um, or I wouldn't Um, I wouldn't expect them to be able to tell me about the National Black Association of Speech, Language and Hearing, because um, in reality, those programs are targeted for that 8 percent, that 8 percent of minority groups, ethnic and racial minority groups or that 4 percent male. Um, And I I don't think there's anything wrong with not knowing about them. But I think part of again, part of um, improving the diversity in our field. Remember, we talked about it's not just numbers, but it's more about um, diversifying our thinking. So part of that is understanding what our colleagues are, um, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, and then thinking about the resources that are in place to help them. So I think part of improving our diversity is, is even if we don't fit into that 8% 
minority group, um, we should still be we should still be aware of the resources that are out there so that we can recommend them to other people so that we can encourage our colleagues uh, who are a part of that minority group to utilize those resources. Like I said, um, I am forever indebted to the, my graduate school professors because, you know, they didn't have to know about these resources. They didn't have to gear me and steer me towards these resources that were meant to help minority SLPs, Um, but they did. And I appreciate that. And I feel like it it was so important. And so just because we aren't a part of that minority group doesn't mean that we can't help steer someone in the direction of those resources. So it's important that everyone knows about these resources. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Um, So I guess my next question is, how how does this lack of diversity and lack of um, representation mean for the growth and the improvement in our field? Um, do we see negative outcomes because our field is so skewed towards white females, or is it just holding us back from achieving? I don't know better outcomes for our patients, uh, better I don't know scientific gains. Like I'm just drawing at straws here. I'm curious. What do you think? Yeah. So again, going back to um, earlier, I talked about how the issue of diversity is is twofold. And we've got how diversity impacts our field, um, like the growth and improvement of our field, and then how it affects our patient care. Um, and so I think it affects both. Um, and so when we So I'll start off with how it affects our field um, and the growth of our field. So when we um, are lacking diversity, I feel that um, we have SLPs who are experiencing isolation in this field. Um, We have to look at the attrition rate in our field. How quickly are the the people in this eight percent, the people in this minority group? How how quickly are they leaving this field? How how long are they staying? What's the longevity in this field? Um, and how satisfied are they in this in this career? Um, and so, when we lack representation, when we lack diversity, we tend to see people who 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 feel like this. They feel like they're isolated. They feel like they're not being heard or seen. Um, They might not have the same satisfaction in their career and they may be wanting to leave the the, the field. And I hear this, uh, I hear this far too often. Um, And so I think it's important that we, um, that we continue to strive for more diversity in our field so that, um, so that people the the clinicians that we have in this field feel like there's a place for them here. Um, And some people, you know, not everyone needs that. Some people kind of make a spot for themselves and that's perfectly fine. Um, But everyone does it. And some people need to know that there's space for them and that they're welcome. And so I think as we, um, as we improve our diversity, it can't do anything but help our field grow and help us become a a better and, and stronger, uh, field as a whole. Um, But then I also think that when we lack representation in in diversity, not only does it affect the growth and improvement and the health of our field, um, but it also affects how we um, interact with our patients. So I love... um, I love ASHA, ASHA's statement. When I went to my first ASHA convention, I got this button um, from Office of Multicultural Affairs, and it says, uh, cultural 
competence um, equals clinical competence. And, and that's what's really stuck with me all these years is that when we start understanding people's cultures, um, we're able to connect with them, which in turn gives us better clinical outcomes. Okay. Um, so when we are giving them culturally appropriate, culturally appropriate, let me start that over. When we are giving them culturally appropriate evaluations and treatments and home exercise plans, um, we are empowering them to participate in their therapy, participate in their treatment. Um, excuse me. Um, And so I like to tell the story uh, just how culturally appropriate treatment and evaluation um, plays a role in our clinical outcomes, how cultural competence equals our clinical competence. So uh, like I said, I'm an acute care SLP. I do multiple bedside swallow evaluations every day. And I think from the moment we start learning our bedside swallow evaluations, we learn that... um, we learned that you start off with an ice chip, correct? Um, you start with an ice chip and then you work your way up. So um, every bedside swallow evaluation I do, I uh, I walk in and I start with my, I have my cup of ice water in my hand and I start with my ice chip and then I work my way up. And working in a, again, working in a large metropolitan city, you come in contact with all different cultures and all types of people. And one thing that I quickly learned is that really the United States is the only place that enjoys cold beverages with ice. A lot of other countries and cultures do not. And so I would start my bedside evaluation with an ice chip. And from there, we would just have a total break in communication, me and the patient. We, it would just it, just a complete breakdown of communication. And sometimes patients were able to verbalize to me, I don't like ice. This is too cold. Um, and then others were not able to verbalize that to me. And that's where we really ran into issues. And so um over time, I have learned learned more about this. I've asked my patients about this. Um, I've I've read up about it, and and I've seen the pattern. And so now I'm a lot more understanding. And so um, you know, when you don't understand these things, that could be the difference between getting your evaluation done or not getting your evaluation done. So it plays a role in our clinical practice. So, um, but I think it's important to look at our expectations. Our, our expectations allowing for full participation from our patients. And a lot of that has to start with understanding the patient's culture. And um, as we get a more diverse workforce, more diverse clinicians, I think we have a better shot at understanding um, patients' cultural cultural backgrounds because now we've got clinicians who understand uh patients' cultural backgrounds. They, you know, we've got a diverse group of clinicians that come from a diverse group of uh, cultural backgrounds. And so they're better equipped to understand um, a patient's cultural needs. So I think that's so important that we understand that cultural competence equals our clinical competence. If we don't, we can be the strongest clinician um, and have the strongest clinical skills. But if we aren't, if we aren't in tune to what our patients' needs are culturally, um, then then there will be a a complete communication breakdown and and we won't get the same clinical outcomes. We just, we just won't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah. I think you summed that up really nicely. Thank you. Um, 
my next question is an interesting one, which is clearly like an opinion question um, of your of your own opinion. But I I wonder like what my role might be in this as well. Okay. Like just as a, as that, what, what are we at? 92%. (laughs) Yeah. Like what role do I have in supporting expanding the diversity in our field? And I ask that because I feel like it might be placing somewhat of an unnecessary burden on the 8%. Like it's all their responsibility to increase the um, diversity in our field. And what if they're not here for that? What if they just want to do their job? You know, it's like, that's cool too. You do you. Um, But then it's like how appropriate or inappropriate or effective or ineffective would it be for someone with like, I'm just the most boring person out there. Like, (laughs) No, definitely not boring. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I want to increase awareness of our field. I want to get more med SLPs um, in in the school system. I'm sorry, that like didn't come out right. More more people interested in joining the med SLP side of our field in the graduate program. Like, but I don't want to just recruit more white females, right? So how can I play a role in that without contributing to the stagnant demographics of our field? I think that's a great question. And I get that question a lot, so much. And I I wish I had better answers because again, I have so many people contact me and they ask me, what can I do? Um, And again, I don't have all the answers, but I think the first thing that, uh, that you can do is to, evaluate your personal biases and kind of check them at the door. I think that's so important for our field is to examine what our own biases are. And I have my own personal biases that I've had to reevaluate and examine. And again, I've had to let them go. Um, in order to be the best clinician that I can be um, and provide my patients with the best care. And so I think everyone's afraid to say that they have biases because it's frowned upon. Nobody wants to, to admit, admit that. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit that. Um, but it's, it's true. It's true. We all have our own biases. And I think it takes a lot to be able to look into yourself and say, you know, these are the things that I don't quite understand. Um, and I want to understand more. Um, Asha, uh, again, going back to Asha's Office of Multicultural Affairs, they have an amazing um, assessment for cultural competence on their uh, website. It is amazing. And I love it. And and it's not, again, I think a lot of people think that this is a... Um, like a, a black and white issue, um, you know, white SLPs versus SLPs of color. Um, and that is not it at all. And so that's why I encourage everyone, when people ask what they do, I ask them, I encourage them to look at that assessment of cultural competence on Ash's website, because it is not what you would think at all. It is very difficult. It's very difficult. They ask you a lot of questions to kind of gauge how much you know about different cultures. And I think when we start thinking about linguistically diverse Uh, cultures or, you know, linguistically diverse populations, we automatically start thinking about Spanish speaking populations because that's what's most prevalent here in most of the United States. Um, But this, this assessment that ASHA has is, is far beyond that. Again, when we start talking about ethnic and racial uh, minority groups, I think a lot of times we think about 
uh, like African-Americans, Blacks. Um, but this assessment goes way beyond that. And I took it myself and I thought it was extremely difficult. And I consider myself to be someone who's culturally competent and, um, you know, who's open to, to learning and understanding new cultures. And I think that I have diverse thought. And then when I took this self-assessment, I realized I did not, um, and that I still have so much more to learn. And I think sometimes we just need that reality check. Like, well, we don't know as much as we thought we, we knew we're not as open and diverse in our thinking as we think we are. Um, and so that's why I love this tool so much because it kind of gives you the reality check that you need. Um, they also have a couple of great PDFs that I would would encourage everyone to complete or even take to you know take into the office. It's a great um, you know staff meeting icebreaker to do. Um, but it basically allows you to do a personal reflection of your. Um, of your uh, cultural competence. Um, it also allows you to look at the policies and procedures of where you work um, so that you can look at how culturally competent are our policies and procedures. So not just me, but also my employer, the policies and procedures we, they have, how inclusive are they? Um, and then it also allows you to look at your service delivery model and look at how um, culturally inclusive it is as well. And so I would encourage everyone to do that in assessment, everyone to take a look at those documents and fill them out and just really think about um, think about yourself and, and think about your own biases and how you can change these. Um, I, have a, I have a funny story um, that I'm just going to tell. When I uh, finished graduate school, I took a job out in Indiana. Um, and I worked in inpatient rehab. And um, in this part of Indiana, there's a very large Amish population. And I did not know a lot about um, the Amish. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know, I've maybe seen Amish people on TV, but I didn't know a lot about them. And so um, this is a prime example of how, um, you know, you want to be culturally inclusive um, and you may think you're culturally inclusive, but you don't know as much as you thought you knew. So um, I had a, an Amish patient who had had a brain injury and we were doing some cognitive linguistic therapy and uh, we were doing some safety awareness and problem solving, functional problem solving. And I think I had showed him a picture of, you know, we were doing safety cute safety cards and I had showed him a picture of, you know, an oven or a telephone and what you would do if there was a fire in the kitchen and how, what number you would call if there was an emergency. And his family was just cracking up. They couldn't stop laughing. And meanwhile, we're going, I'm going through, he's getting all of these questions wrong and I'm just putting wrong, wrong, wrong. And I'm thinking, oh, he's got like severe cognitive linguistic deficits here, um, severe, you know, safety awareness, severe uh, problem solving uh, deficits. And his family's just cracking up and I'm just steadily marking all these questions wrong. And finally I ask him, you know, what's so funny? And he's like, well, you know, we don't have an oven. We don't have a phone. Um, we don't have a TV. And I just kind of froze and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, I've chosen a com completely inappropriate task. Um, and it's a prime example of how I had been, um, I'd been scoring this man. I'd been giving him, I'd scored him, um, you know, pretty much at 
zero for this task. Um, when in reality, I wasn't being culturally inclusive. I didn't have diversity in my thought. I didn't understand uh, this man's culture. And I, to be honest, I was afraid to ask questions. And that's another mistake that we make. We're afraid to ask questions. So I only knew, you know, Amish people from TV, stereotypes or, you know, stereotypes and generalizations. And so I was afraid to come in and assume that about this man. I called myself being open-minded, you know, I don't want to make stereotypes about this man. Um, but instead what I should have done is I should have learned more about him and I should have asked, I should, I should have learned more about his cultural background. Um, not, I didn't have to make a generalization. I didn't have to use a stereotype, but I should have had a conversation with him and I should have asked him about more about his home life so that I could understand his culture, what he values and what's more important, what's important to him. Um, so that I could have made better clinical decisions. And so it's a prime example of how we, um, we don't ask enough questions because we're afraid of what the person might think. We're afraid of being rude. Um, but we're also kind of, projecting our own biases and we don't even know it. Um, and it's not, it's not in a malicious, there's it, nothing malicious about it. It's just, we're not giving our patients the best clinical care when we're not using, um, when we're not being culturally competent and we're not being diverse in our thoughts and we're not being open with our patients to learn about them and vice versa. That's excellent. I love that story so much. That's such a good story. It really encapsulates like everything about being culturally competent. And my favorite takeaway from that story, like I want to put this on a t-shirt <laughs> is don't be afraid to ask questions. Like you totally hit the nail on the head there. Like that resonated like a giant bell going off in my head that's a pit that I fall into. I'm too scared that my question to get to know them better would somehow offend them. That is such a lie. Like <laughs> that might happen in 1% of the cases. Exactly. Like that is such an outlier, but that limits us from actually providing competent care to people. And so that is such a key lesson that literally I need to put it on a shirt. So I'm reminded every day. Yes, I would every love day. it. <laughs> in doubt, ask a question. Yes, absolutely. And then from then on, I, I started having so many great uh, conversations with my patients. When I have patients who are Amish who came into our rehab, I would, I mean, we would even go over our sessions. I would just talk to them and I would ask them questions about their culture. And they're more than happy to tell me, um, you know, more than happy to talk to me and tell me things about their culture. So you you guys don't use a phone. Well, what, what do you use? Tell me about it. Um, and then I found myself tailoring my clinical activities, my clinical tasks um, to fit their culture. So I knew that I wouldn't be able to just rip a page out of a book. I wouldn't be able just to grab some, some picture cards and, and do our session. I was going to have to think about it a little bit more and it was challenging. It was absolutely challenging, but um it was me providing the best care um, for, for those patients. And again, most patients are more than happy to chat with you. People love talking about their culture. It's, it's, it's so much a part of us. It's such a big part of our lives. We love talking about it. So don't ever be afraid to, to ask questions. Oh yeah. If somebody is coming to you in genuine interest and earnestness, like they're going to respond in kind and they're going to appreciate that you care enough to learn more about them. Like that says a lot. So yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that is, I think we covered all of our bases. I'm impressed. We did. 
Okay. I say we very generously. (laughs) You did an amazing job. Thank Thank you you. so much, Mary Louise. This was excellent. I loved it so much. Um, Any uh, final parting thoughts? Um, How can people reach out to you um, and engage with you outside of this uh, podcast episode? Absolutely. So I guess my, uh, my final thought is that phrase that I take with me every day is that your cultural competence equals your clinical competence. And that if we are lacking in our uh, cultural competence, then there is just no way that we will be the best clinicians that we can be. Um, And I think part of improving um, our cultural competence is by diversifying our, our, our field. I think, I think that's one of the main things that we need to do. Um, And by mentoring those students um, and those young professionals, those early career professionals, I think um, that will help to diversify our field, making them feel like they chose the right field and they can do this and that there's a place for them here. Um, So I think that through mentorship, by reaching back and targeting a lot of those um, young clinicians in those minority groups that we can work to improve our improve the diversity in our field through mentorship. It helped me. Um, You know, some days I felt like giving up, but I stuck with it because I had amazing mentors who told me exactly what I needed to do. They guided me every step of the way and I never felt alone. And I am forever indebted to those people. And I feel like I am where I am today. And I feel that I've made it this far in this, in this career because I had wonderful people who were guiding me. So every chance I get, I'd like to, mentor. I like to guide young clinicians. And so that's what led me to create my blog. Uh, it is www.me, the SLP. It's M-E, the SLP. Um, and so, like I said earlier, I created this blog to really highlight and engage young minorities um, in the field of speech and language pathology, but particularly medical speech and language pathology. So I talk a lot about medical speech and language pathology on my blog, um, but really it's for all SLPs. And if you, um, I would encourage everyone to go and check out my blog. Um, but if you are interested, um, in reaching out to me, um, you can find me on Instagram, um, at M E the SLP, or you can find me on Facebook at M E the SLP. Um, and you can always email me at info at me, the SLP.com. So again, I love hearing from students. I love hearing from early career professionals. I love hearing from everyone. If there's anything, um, I can help you with, or you have questions kind of about my journey or how to get involved in uh, medical speech language pathology or how to get through grad school, how to get into grad school. Um, I'm always happy to answer those questions. Um, and I'm always mentoring on on Asha's uh, mentoring platform. Um, so who knows where you'll see me, but hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, we get to uh, chat in the, in the future. And if you're looking for a mentor, just know that you can always reach out to me and I'm happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mary Louise. This was amazing. And I'm so glad we get to share this information with our listening audience. Thank you so, so much. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. 
Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 